Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Good morning. I love that you're here as we start this season of intentionally preparing ourselves uh, spiritually for Christmas. It's like we're going to have our own little mini Advent here for the next three weeks and continue that right into our celebration of Christmas Eve. We're going to spend that entire time, the three Sundays that we get together in December and our time together on Christmas Eve, uh, really reflecting on one verse of Scripture. And it's a verse of Scripture that is going to be familiar to probably almost all of us, even if you're like brand new to church, there's no doubt that you have heard this at some uh, point in the past. This is kind of come from Luke chapter 2. Jesus has been born. There is a group of shepherds tending the flock outside of Bethlehem. They think they're going to be having just a quiet night like any other when all of a sudden an angel shows up and he says to them, don't be afraid, uh, which is how you end up starting every conversation if you're you're an angel because we kind of have this idea in our head of like, you know, chubby pink little baby in a diaper. But if you look at it biblically, angel is more of like a warrior of light. Um, So kind of this terrifyingly intense presence that shows up. No joke. The shepherds freak out. The angel's like, no, no, it's going to be okay. I am proclaiming to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And when you take that proclamation of good news, great joy that will be for all people, I think we find um, both an encouraging part of that verse and we find a challenging part of that verse if we're honest with ourselves. The encouraging part of the verse is that this whole Christmas season that we are officially in, this story that we remind ourselves of every single year of the undeniable historical event of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, this whole enterprise is good news. And if we're experiencing it properly, it should create in our hearts great joy. Now, obviously, even in that encouragement, there is something worth thinking about because we all need to pay a decent amount of attention over the rest of December to this question of whether or not we are experiencing Advent as a a season of great joy or are we allowing it to become a season of great stress, right? Are, Are we acting as if this is a season of celebration or are we acting as if this is a season of obligation? And that's something that we all struggle with and it's something we all struggle with every single December and there will be opportunities over the course of the month, whether it's here on Sunday or in community groups or different gatherings to kind of check in with each other and just ask, like, how, how is that going? Are you enjoying this Christmas season or have you already given up on that for 2022 but just vowed that, like, no, next year is going to be different. Like this is truly meant to be one of the most joyful times of year for us, right? We have to make sure it stays that way. And depending on what your weekend looked like, that may have already sounded like the challenging part of the verse. But no, stick with me. The actual more challenging part is what comes at the tail end of the verse. This idea that the good news of Christmas is for 
all the people. And that's going to be our theme through Advent and Christmas. This idea that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy for all the people. Which means that the birth of Jesus should be good news not only for those who already believe in him, but also for those who don't. That there is even something in this story that might spark joy in the hearts of those who mock the life of Jesus or maybe even deny the reality of his life. Right? There is a reminder for us that the birth of Jesus should be good news, not only for those who are able to afford all of the cultural expectations that go along with a middle-class American Christmas, but if we're really understanding this Christmas message, it would also be the kind of thing that we could imagine creating joy in the hearts of people who will celebrate Christmas in Ukraine this year. That the joy of Christmas works in Haiti as well as it works in Arlington or it doesn't work at all. That the joy of Christmas is able to be found not just in warm, well-lit, blissfully Instagrammable living rooms, but also in the homes of the urban and rural poor here in this country. That it is truly good news of great joy for all the people. And it seems to me that's the part that we struggle with. That's the part that we struggle with culturally. It's the part that we struggle with as the church. Because it seems like if we're being honest, if you look at the world outside of the church, it seems like there are a lot of people who have not yet got the message that this whole Christmas thing should be the cause of good news and great joy for them. Right? There's a lot of people who feel excluded from what it is that we're celebrating this holiday season. Or maybe even more accurately here in our city, there's a lot of people who, if they are finding joy in Christmas, they're finding the kind of joy that comes along with a few days off from work, a new iPad, and a ski vacation. Which, hey, nothing wrong with any of that, but that's not the deep joy that Jesus has in mind on this day of his birth. That's not what God has for for us, God has something more, something more rugged, more durable, something that is deeper. Right? And we know that there's this problem kind of getting the message out in the broader culture, but it also seems like part of that problem is with us, possibly, if we're willing to allow ourselves to think this way. Right? Because it's possible in the church, in light of this fact that here we are celebrating the birth of Jesus, this source of great news, we look at it and we're like, man, the rest of the world hasn't gotten the message. Sometimes we're very quick to blame the rest of the world, right? Just kind of shake our heads and be like, man, I don't know what's wrong with them. I wish they would kind of get with the program, right? That's where we come up with these little cultural phrases of like, I'm going to put the Christ back in Christmas. And you're like, oh, okay. Why, why do you seem so angry about that? And why, why do you seem to think your fury is going to lead people to good news of great Joy, right? Like, it, it's the moment where you see somebody who, let's just assume, is well-intentioned and having a tough day. They go in for their morning latte, and their barista who's just been up making lattes for high-maintenance ungrateful people since 6 a.m. in the morning decides to offer a tentative happy holidays. And that's the moment where we decide you're going to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And you're like, uh-uh-uh. Merry 
Christmas in a tone of voice that could easily be followed with, take that. Merry Christmas. That's how we're going to do it. Like, come on, get with the program. This is about Jesus. He's the reason for the season, right? And it's worthwhile asking the question, is it possible that we have lost sight of what God has asked us to be as his people in the world. It seems like one of the great struggles for the people of God is to remember that in the words of the Apostle Paul, God makes his appeal through us. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, that yes, it's possible that if people have yet to get the message of Christmas as good news and great joy, maybe they're not paying attention. And maybe they're rejecting what they're hearing, but it also might be that we as a church have turned inward. Not just Restoration City Church, but the American church, the Western church, we've turned inward and we have lost our confidence that this child of Christmas really is who John described him to be. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, that we have gone Inward, And what we want to do over the next three weeks is allow the Christmas story to stretch our understanding of what the biblical writers meant when they said, for all the people. Allow God to stretch our understanding of that and then invite the Holy Spirit to challenge us to live in a way that brings good news of great joy to those who least expect it. And as we begin that journey of what does it mean to say this is good news of great joy for all the people, we're going to start with the simple observation that Christmas was meant to be good news for the materially poor, which is a fairly obvious starting point. Because when we look at the Christmas story, uh, we see that it is a story that seems to be told almost exclusively through the lens of the materially poor. Um, You probably have heard before that both Mary and Joseph are incredibly poor, even by the socioeconomic standard of their day. You look at Luke chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of David and the family line of David. This is in response to a census. They have to go up to Bethlehem, be counted, all of that. But Joseph and his family are from Nazareth. Jesus will be called a Nazarene. And what we sometimes miss out on is that Nazareth is such an insignificant city that if you were to read the entire Old Testament, you would realize it is not mentioned a single time. Like even in those chapters that we all skip over that just seem like they're nothing more than a boring list of names and towns and tribes and territories and who went here and who did what and all this stuff, you go through all of it, Nazareth is not there at all. It is this town that nobody paid any attention to, yet that is where Joseph is from. That is where Jesus is from. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we talk about this part almost every year. Then she, that's Mary, while they're in Bethlehem, gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them, that Mary gives birth in what was most likely a cave or maybe a little cutout in a rock formation, and she lays this infant child of Christmas in a manger, which would have been a feeding trough for animals. And we 
sentimentalize that. And we spend a lot of money on nativity scenes that create this beautiful moment where even the cow comes to genuflect in front of the baby. And I'm just going to guess that for those of you that have had children, or for those of you that one day would dream of having children, that livestock was not part of your birthing plan. That wasn't the dream of like, hey, you know what would make this better? Let's get a couple of head of cattle in the room. That'll, that'll really make it more sanitary and more awesome. Like, like this is a terrifying scene. There's a couple of um, homeless camps in our city in the district, and I'm thinking in particular there's one uh, kind of down as you come out of Georgetown, uh, in the intersection of Rock Creek Park and the Kennedy Center, there's, there's like an overpass there, and there's always a number of homeless men and women who are, are living there. And if you want to understand the Christmas story, you have to envision somebody giving birth under that overpass. Maybe a little bit more private, but actually less sanitary. And say, what expectations would you have of a child that was born under an overpass in the middle of a homeless camp just a couple of miles down the road? Would you be looking to him as the savior of the world? As the source of majesty and power and glory that 2,000 years later people would be gathered into auditoriums all over the world singing of his life, his death, his resurrection, singing the songs of his glory? Or would you write that kid off and say, man, at best, he's going to be a charity project for his whole life, but he's not going to be the hope of anything, and he's not going to be the savior of anything. Right? Mary and Joseph's poverty is confirmed, Luke chapter 2, verse 24, when they go to present Jesus at the temple, which was the custom of the day, and they offer a sacrifice. Luke 2, 24 says, offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and of two young pigeons. And it seems like Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what they're supposed to. And in a sense, they are. They're bringing Jesus and dedicating him at the temple. And it's like, okay, they're supposed to offer a sacrifice. No surprise there. There's a sacrifice for everything in the Old Testament. And this time, it's two turtle doves and some young pigeons, and we're all good to go. Except the problem is what they were supposed to offer was sheep. That's what Leviticus called for. Uh, you don't get two turtle doves in the story until you get all the way to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, where it basically says, hey, if you're so poor that you can't afford to bring the sheep that you're supposed to bring, there's like this little poverty clause that says if you can't afford the sheep, you can just bring Two doves. You, you, you can just do that. And Luke is including this detail not to show, hey, look, Mary and Joseph did it perfectly. But he's doing it to say, hey, don't turn up your nose. Yes, I know they just brought two pigeons, but don't forget Le- Leviticus 12. That's allowed. That's okay. Jesus is born into poverty, and he lives most of his life in poverty. Luke chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It seems most likely that Jesus lived either with mom and dad or stayed with friends as an itinerant preacher. It seems most um, likely that Jesus never owned a home of his own or even probably paid rent on his own, never had his own place throughout his entire life. So you have Mary and Joseph, you have Jesus, you have the shepherds who were by no means a middle-class occupation. They were some of the poorest of the poor in the ancient Near East. And the point that I'm trying to make is that when you look at the Christmas story, the poverty that you see in the story is extremely conspicuous. 
Right? I think we're all familiar with the carefully crafted marketing photos that kind of dominate our world today, and in many ways, like, grateful for them. But you know what I'm talking about? It's like the picture where you see uh, eight friends um, who just happen to be gathered together around a fire pit enjoying whatever product we're trying to sell. All, all eight of them ridiculously good looking, but somehow those eight people represent all the demographic possibilities in our world today, right? It's this perfect balance of gender and ethnicity, even throw in an old person and kind of anything else you can think about where you're like, oh, look, nobody's left out of this photo. And if we can do it and make it seem natural and make sure that everybody's still beautiful and all that kind of stuff, the marketing director has done his or her job and the client would roll up at the photo shoot and be like, well done, that's awesome. Nobody's going to feel left out here. But if you were trying to turn the Christmas story into a photo shoot and you rolled up on the photo shoot, you would be like, wait a minute. Everybody's poor. Like, I mean, do we want to just like throw in a middle class person for diversity? Like, I mean, I'm sorry, this is just like everybody's poor here. Like, I don't understand. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Would you like to reshuffle it? Maybe we can get some other people in. And God rolls up on a scene that's told exclusively in terms of poverty. And he's like, no, I'm good. That's, yeah, I'm good. That's how I wanted it. It's conspicuous. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is why? Like, why does God do it this way? I think there's a couple different answers. I think in some ways it offers all of us kind of this heart check. And here's the nice part. It's a heart check for us that comes in the first weekend in December. Right? It comes where there's still an opportunity for us to do something about our plans for the coming month, because it is this reminder that the joy of Christmas has nothing to do with our socioeconomic status. That you can be a billionaire and miss the joy of Christmas, and you can have literally nothing and find the radiant joy of God in the midst of this Christmas season. Which means we owe it to ourselves early on in Advent to ask the question of what are we actually looking to for joy in this season? Right, because the temptation for many of us, particularly inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., is to ask the cultural trappings of this holiday to carry a weight that they were never meant to bear. And listen to me, there is nothing inherently wrong with all of the cards and cookies and trees and gifts and trips and families and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. Like Laura and I are going to buy Christmas presents for our kids this year. And we're not going to feel bad about that. We're not going to feel guilty. We're not going to feel like we're cheaping out on Jesus, that we're somehow dishonoring the holiday. Like we, I want you to enjoy Christmas. But the only way that you're actually going to enjoy Christmas is that if we realize that we cannot get our deepest joy from anything that has a price tag on it. If you can put a price tag on it, whether it's a flight or a gift or what you're going to invest in a card or what you're going to spend on Christmas dinner, or any, if you can put a price tag on it, it cannot be the source of your deepest joy. It won't be able to carry that weight. So take the trip. Buy the gift. Eat the dinner. That's great. Just don't think that your joy is ultimately going to come from there. So then the question becomes, are we actually going to reach for the things that could be ours 
even if we had nothing. Because God wants to highlight those things. And he says, hey, if the joy of Christmas is really independent of your socioeconomic status, then it means the things that will actually thrill our hearts, the things that we are actually longing for, are the things that we could find even if we had nothing. He says, hey, why don't you look for your joy over there? And if you find joy there, it'll enable you to enjoy all of the other stuff. All right, so there's just a sense where there's a heart check early in December saying, hey, let's just look for our joy in the right place. But I don't think it's quite as simple as that because, again, back to the conspicuous poverty of the story, right? It, it, it's not a socioeconomically diverse group that says, oh, look, Christmas works for rich and for poor and middle class and grad students and all that kind of stuff. He's saying, no, I, I want to make a point. I want to make a point about the materially poor and I want to make a point about the materially affluent. Right? When we talk about the materially poor, we do need to spend a few minutes to make sure we know what we're talking about. Because there are probably a number of us in this room who have either experienced or flirted with like, almost like various forms of like socially acceptable poverty. Like I'm thinking of like grad school, Right? You're like, I know poverty. I got an MBA. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm sure you ate ramen and you didn't have the money and you, you know, dropped Netflix for three months when life got, you know, really bad. And, and, all, and that's great, right? But sometimes when we talk about poverty, we talk about sort of this middle class, socially, economically uh, viable form of poverty. Right? It's the kind of poverty that comes with a safety net and the hope of a better future. Where you're like, worst case scenario, mom and dad are there to bail me out. Worst case, worst, worst case scenario, I can move back home with mom and dad. But I'm doing all of this because one day I'm going to be a lawyer. One day I'm going to be a doctor. One day I'm going to get the job. One day I'm going to pay off the loans. One day I'm going to do this. Right? That, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not trying to minimize that. Like some of us are like going through a season, you're like, life is tight right now. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize. The Bible wants us to talk about the kind of poverty, though, that comes with no safety net and that has no real hope of a better future. The kind of poverty that makes you feel trapped, that makes you feel afraid, that makes you feel like everything is fragile, nothing is certain, and you're always going to live this way. Right? In the end of October, I got to spend a couple of days down visiting one of our new ministry partners that works in the Dominican Republic, um, serving churches in the DR and actually doing a lot of training for pastors in Haiti. And I got to spend times in, communi- in, commu- I got to spend time in communities that should reframe that understanding of, hey, there's a kind of poverty that seems to swallow you whole and define the entire trajectory of your life. And it's passed down generation to generation. And I've seen it in the DR, and I've seen it in Haiti, and I've seen it in Kibera, one of the largest slums in Nairobi. And we should know that you don't have to break out your passport to see that kind of poverty, that it exists right here in our city, and it exists right here in our region. And the Bible wants to press the conversation there. The Bible wants to press the conversation to the kind of poverty that comes with a stigma associated with it. And again, some of us, you know what I'm talking about when I say that, right? It's the kind of poverty that makes you feel less, that makes you feel inferior. 
It's the kind of poverty that says there's something wrong with you and everybody's looking down on you. And I would just guess that some of us have some firsthand experience with that too. Because you knew what it was like to grow up acutely aware that the clothes you were wearing were nowhere near the clothes the cool kids were wearing. You knew that they were hand-me-downs from an older sibling. What you didn't know is that they were hand-me-downs for the older sibling, too, because mom bought them for Goodwill because that was all she could afford. So they were hand-me-downs for your older brother, and they were certainly hand-me-downs for you. And you grew up with the frustration of getting in trouble that you blew the knees out when you were playing football, and nobody ever said, hey, maybe part of the reason that keeps happening is because those genes are older than you are. You're only five. Those things are seven years old. But you knew what it was like to walk into school and to feel like, no, if I was cool, if mom and dad could buy me what I wanted, I would look like her. I would dress like him. And I don't look like that. Some of you knew what it was like to ask mom and dad to drop you off at a distance because you didn't want to be seen getting out of the family car because people were going to laugh. You were the last people on the planet that were still driving a station wagon. And you were like, I don't want to be seen in that. You hated the conversation in college when it came around to, hey, what do your mom and dad do? Like, he's a professor. He's a lawyer. She's a doctor. You're like, he's a mechanic. When he can get a job. And when he's not drinking. You hated that moment. Because sometimes it was met with pity. And sometimes it was met with, an overly bubbly, like, oh, that's awesome. We drive cars. And you're like, shut up. Just shut up. Because it didn't feel awesome. It felt like the whole world had told you there was something wrong with you the whole time. Because you didn't have what everybody else had. And the more that's been your experience the more joy there is to be found in the fact that the birth of Jesus comes to remove the stigma of poverty. One of the people that's helped me understand that is a theologian named Miguel de la Torre. He's written a number of books. He's a professor, but he he reflects on it this way in a way that maybe lands a little closer to home for us. Can any good thing come out of the ghetto? Can any good thing come out of the barrio? Jesus came from the impure and mixed neighborhood of his time. No decent, respectable member of the center of society comes from those types of neighborhoods. Indeed, Jesus knows what it means to come from the wrong side of the tracks because he experienced the cultural bias of being from the margins of society. Oppressed and poor people, including those of color, are able to find solidarity with their God. And the key part of that quote is this ability to find solidarity with their God. That when Jesus comes to earth, he makes the intentional choice to be born to two poor, unwed teenagers. He makes the intentional choice to live his life in poverty. And the first people in the history of the world to hear the announcement of the birth of Jesus are some poor, marginalized, despised shepherds. And he's doing it because he wants all of us to understand that dignity and value and a sense that you're worthy of being loved and a sense that you matter, those are not middle-class privileges, but those are our birthrights as image bearers of God. 
And maybe some of us will celebrate that idea from a distance and say, oh, that's nice. But for some of us, depending on the background that you come from, depending on the life that you're living right now, that has the potential to be a game changer for us. And let's be honest, it's a message that we all need to hear. That your dignity and your value is not determined by how much you have. Right? One of the things I've been amazed at as I've watched my three kids grow up is how early in life, and I shouldn't be amazed because this was true of my childhood too, I had just forgotten it, but how early in life my kids and their friends start comparing the cars that they drive, start comparing houses, start comparing Pokemon cards. There's a truly absurd conversation. Start comparing clothes and parents' jobs. And it's just kind of done with this idea that if you have more, you're somehow better. And if you have less, there's somehow something wrong with you. And some of us are in our mid-30s or mid-40s, and we're still fighting that lie in our heart. And you just need to embrace the idea that your value and your dignity and your worthiness has nothing to do with how much money is in your bank account. It has everything to do with God's love for you and it has everything to do with what Jesus paid to redeem your life on the wood of a cross. So there is something in this story that can lift the stigma of poverty off of all of our souls. There is something also in this story that comes to remove what we might call the pride of affluence or the pride of wealth, right? It's this invitation for all of us who come from a slightly more privileged background or those of us who have more access to resources in this world today that we dare not look at our wealth and achievement as a sign of our superiority. We need to learn to see them as a sign of God's grace on our life. Right? Realizing how much of the trajectory of my life has been shaped by the family that I was born into. In the middle class suburb that I was born into with access to the schools that I had and the colleges I got to go to. And yes, do I want to think that I made the best of those opportunities and I worked hard? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. If you shouldn't feel ashamed that you were born poor, you also should not feel ashamed that you were born middle class. Or you were born wealthy, you just didn't want to say it because that felt rude. You shouldn't feel shame about that. And you should feel a sense of, man, I made the best with the opportunities God gave me, and I worked hard, and that's great. Just don't turn the corner to somehow believing the lie that it makes you better. Let it propel us around the corner that makes us grateful for the grace of God in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a debate happening in the church in Corinth where some people are kind of jockeying for position in the church based on whether they were closer to Paul or to Apollos. And Paul wants to deal pretty strongly with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, where he says the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant. In other words, stop don't even, I'm not, I'm not trying to referee the fight of is it better to follow Paul or Apollos. He's like, here's the answer. Stop being arrogant. Stop favoring one person over another. And here's the real question. This is the one that applies to all of us. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? All right, that our lives are told through a tapestry of grace and of gift that the purpose of our resume is not to be impressed with ourselves but rather to grow in gratitude to God 
and to deepen our awareness of his grace in our lives. Because what God wants to do is he says, hey, I don't want you to feel bad about the resources that you have access to, whether that's money or position or influence or you're managing a bunch of people. Don't, don't you dare feel bad about that. Let me take the pride that might trip you up and replace it with a sense of purpose. Genesis uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 13. Uh, sorry, this is Genesis Chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. I got it wrong in the notes there. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. This is God talking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Our culture tells a story that joy is found in enclaves of privilege, where the Bible shows us that the, re- the reality that joy is found in a life of purpose. And here's what's interesting. This idea of the people of God being a blessing for all the people is as old as the people of God. This is what God says to Abraham when he enters into that first covenant with humanity. He says, yes, I'm going to bless you, but through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Abraham, I'm going to use you as a vehicle to transform the spiritual and physical lives of other people. And somehow, the people of God continually lose sight of that. So that on Christmas, the angel's like, hey, it's good news, it's great joy. Don't forget the the for all people kind of thing. Like, Oh, yeah, right, that's always been the plan. But then we get busy doing life, and for 2,000 years, we need the same reminders. And this Christmas, we need the same reminder that it's not just meant to be a source of joy for us. It's meant to be a source of joy for the whole world. And you and I have the privilege of being a part of God's plan to bring that joy to the whole world. Right? So as we wrap up, we should find ourselves in kind of one of two different places. We should find ourselves deeply encouraged that the joy of Christmas is available to you. Period without exceptions, regardless of socioeconomic status. And for those of us who struggle more with pride than with stigma, we just need to embrace the idea that there's a purpose behind what God is doing in our lives and ask ourselves if we want to be the kind of people who attempt to hoard the grace of God, or if we open ourselves up to the invitation of God to be a vehicle through which his blessing will flow to the world. Joy, by the way, is found when we say yes to that second invitation. We say, all right, God, I'm going to see if the Christmas of my dreams isn't found by the gifts I receive, but maybe it's found through the gifts that I give, right? This idea, this interplay of wealth and poverty is not just a statement about the cultural reality of our time. It's not just a statement about social justice. It's at the very core of the gospel. Because when you think about who it is that we're worshiping here today, we have to do so in a way that's mindful of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty 
you might become rich. And Jesus trades infinite wealth and limitless power to come to the world he created to ultimately offer his life on the wood of a cross so that we could find a wealth that we never dreamed of. And you're like, wait, what do you mean by a wealth that we never dreamed of? Well, I, I mean the kind of wealth that the New Testament talks about where we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I talk, I'm talking about the kind of wealth that the writers of Scripture had in mind when they talked about us as followers of Jesus becoming co-heirs with Jesus to all things. The kind of wealth that would allow for the kingdom of heaven and for the church of God to become the kind of community where those of us who have been blessed use our resources to care for those who are in a season of need. To talk about what it means to know that we've been adopted into the family of God and that the creator of the universe invites us to call him Abba Father. I, I, I get it. Not all of us are rolling into Christmas flush with cash. But there's an incredible wealth that comes when you are able to call the creator of the world Father. And you're able to call Jesus friend. And the more we open up our hearts to that, the more we realize just how much we have to give to the world. So Father in heaven, I want to come to you now. And I want to thank you for this Christmas season. God, I want to thank you for what you have given us in and through Jesus. God, I want to thank you that even through passages like this that seem more challenging, you're fighting for our joy. You're helping us fight back against myths that would lead us away from you and showing us the path that leads to you and to the joy of the kingdom of God. So Lord Jesus, would you meet us right now? Would you speak to us? Would you give us what we need to find true and lasting joy in this season? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.